last time, you know, we had a lot of planned questions, but ended up spending most of our time on audience questions. So I'm going to start with one of our planned questions we didn't get to. And I also have some audience questions we didn't get to last time. So we'll start with those and uh, take your questions also as they come in. Okay, so first one, how do you divide, how do you define device lifetime with respect to the clinical data? Jay? Oh, start? I'm the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is something that, you know, most manufacturers struggle with. Um, it's, it's not a brand new concept under the MDR. It's something that was in the MDD, but it's getting a lot more focus under the MDR. Um, <clears throat> say, for example, you know, you, you may have a, you may have an implant, like a stent or maybe even an orthopedic implant. And the question there that we frequently get is, okay, now are we supposed to follow up for the lifetime of the patient? Uh, is supposed to be a 20-year follow-up? What is it, what is it gonna be like? And the answer is, as usual, it depends, right? Is it is it a run-of-the-mill drug-eluting stent? You know, one of the second-generation stents that have been very well characterized by now, or is it a device that affords brand new features? Are there any specific claims associated with it? You know, what what do we know about it? What do we uh, what are some of the uh, unknowns associated with it? Potential unknowns associated with it? And what I mean to say is, if you're able to draft a justification around the technology reaching a certain stage of quiescence in terms of host tissue response. Um, and uh, it, 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 for example, if it's a second generation stent, you can very well argue that somewhere between the three to five year time frame is where you can cease to follow up from a device lifetime perspective because these the response has been very well characterized and you don't really need to follow up because you know the stent thrombosis and stent restenosis rates um, tend to plateau off once you reach that three to five year time point. So it really depends on the maturity of your technology. You know, what is the standard of care out there? What are the typical follow-up periods, right? Uh, I know Amy has some additional comments around uh, functional lifetime and so on that may apply to some of the other devices as well. Yeah, that, thanks Jay. I mean, I think that, that's the point. You can look at it in terms of what is the functional uh, lifetime of that device compared with what are the potential impacts. Um, so, so for example, if you've got um, a, a fusion device, so spinal fusion, and maybe fusion is achieved within 18 months, and you could look at, well, in terms of functional performance, we're looking at outcomes at 18 months, but are there longer term risks? And is, can you justify, say, a proactive PMS mechanism for following up any safety issues because the duration of the fusion device will be the lifetime of the patient? So you could have your functional lifetime and your duration of, of um, your duration in the patient lifetime on the other end of the spectrum, you could have, say, a surgical instrument, which is transiently used. Now, if it's a run-of-the-mill surgical instrument, maybe just, you know, immediate performance is, is an acceptable out, um, sort of lifetime. You're just looking at what's happening during the procedure. But if there's an element of novelty to it, and it's in this essentially enabled a procedure that couldn't otherwise be undertaken without this instrument, then you might need to be looking at what are longer-term outcomes, because how would the patient be treated if that device didn't exist? And what would be a measure of successful safety and performance for the other treatment options? And if you're looking at outcomes to five years, then maybe for that instrument, if it's novel and it's enabling a new type of, of procedure, maybe you have to be looking at five years for that kind of thing to, to enable that comparison. with. <coughs> I, I have a question. So 
I think there's almost two definitions of lifetime of the device, which I think is a little bit confusing. So there's like the clinical lifetime of the device, which is somewhat what I think the two of you are talking about, which is like, how long does it, like, when does it cease to fulfill its intended purpose? Meaning it's integrated in the body, it's done what it was supposed to do, and now it's just passively sitting there. But then the other kind of thing, way I've seen lifetime kind of interpreted is with regard to PMCF. And it says you have to follow up the uh, confirmed safety and performance for the lifetime of the device. And to me, that definition seems slightly different. And I think people struggle with, well, how do I handle that? So do, I don't know if you guys know from BSI's perspective, like I agree in the CER, you might say, look, we expect it to last two years. You know, here's the data that supports the two-year usage. But then what about like, PMCF or PMS, like, are you expected if the device is still on the market, is that considered the lifetime of the device and you should be doing some sort of proactive PMS in order to collect data on that device for the marketing lifetime of the device, for lack of a better term? I don't know, Jay, have you, what's BSI kind of, how they have they been interpreting that? Yeah, so, so for lifetime considerations, if it's a brand new device that's coming out there, like I said, if it's, you know, for the sake of this conversation, a Me Too device, like we were talking about a second generation stent, but it is a new device, right? And the manufacturer may have one year follow-up data at the time of CE marking. Now that is not enough to cover the lifetime. So they'll come in at the time of CE marking with a lot of in vitro lifetime test data, fatigue test data, uh, some modeling data to tell you what the predicted lifetime is, right? But then your PMCF, and let's assume the predicted lifetime based on all of that testing is 10 years, right? And some of the stuff was will need to be discussed in the SSCP too. So we have to be very careful how we approach that. So they say, okay, we have test data, fatigue data that lasts 10 years. And, and hopefully that fatigue testing is testing to failure and not survival, right? Based on certain standards. Now, the PMCF in the true sense of the word will need to cover those 10 years or whatever claims the manufacturer is making for the device lifetime. But like I said, depending on the current existing body of knowledge, right? Depending on what the standard of care is, it it, it may be a little more risky to subject the patient to follow up for 10 years. If you're supposed to be doing angiography or whatever, you know, maybe there are invasive methods involved, um, involved when it comes to follow up and the benefit risk doesn't really pan out beyond the three to five year period. Right, because that you can very well argue that the technology has reached quiescence, the rate for stent thrombosis or instant restenosis has really flattened, and beyond the five-year time point, if you are actually going to follow up using any invasive means other than just clinical evaluation, you're actually subjecting the patient to any additional risk more so than needed and dictated by standard of care. So there are ways to justify, you know, um, wherever applicable, of course, to justify a lower uh, time frame for follow-up as compared to the original device lifetime that may have been established through in vitro means. Now, this really depends on some of the points that Amy was trying to make, right? What What is the benefit risk? What are the other available alternatives? How matured is the um, you know, state of the art? And what is the actual standard of care for follow-up, right? There have been instances, I've, I've witnessed a few instances myself where Regulators have pushed, and I know Amy has multiple examples as well, have pushed for follow-up that's not within standard of care. Now, in those cases, it may be justified because it was a brand new technology, um, or you know there may be other factors involved. 
So it's not any one item that dictates what the exact PMCF follow-up should be, but yes, coming back to your question, the PMCF follow-up um, needs to be justified. The time frame for the follow-up needs to be justified very closely in connection with the device lifetime and uh, rationalization is definitely an option to go slightly lesser where but applicable. You're looking yeah. at clinical lifetime of the device, right? Yes. 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 Okay. And yeah. and so in there are instances, let's say it's five years that is the accepted clinical lifetime mm -hmm. that you would say, look, and you have enough data. So mm -hmm. there are instances where you'd say, well, we're just going to, we don't need to collect any more data. But we'll just continue to do clinical evaluation, literature searching, looking at other devices, like the literature for other devices and databases as our post-market activity. Is that right? It is possible. Once again, it is possible in theory, yes. But once again, it depends on your device and what your device is offering. Say, for example, uh, let's take take a heart valve, right? You could have a second generation heart valve, a regular bioprosthetic tissue heart valve that's been out there for 20 years. In such a case, you can easily justify a five-year follow-up, even though it may be in the patient for 15 years. But you could have a new transcatheter heart valve that is newly approved for a low-risk patient population, in which case you may have to follow up for at least 10 years or more. And that can change too, depending on what we learn between now and then. So it really depends on your target patient population, what your device features are, what it has to offer. Uh, so a lot of things that go into consideration. I just add one thing to that as well, is that normally the expectation is that for all but the lowest risk, most non-novel standard of care devices is, is typically an expectation of some kind of proactive post-market surveillance. Yeah. Literature review and monitoring other devices isn't normally considered to be a proactive mechanism. So by proactive, they're looking at you're designing, you know, you, you've got a specific research question, there's some residual risk that you want to investigate, and so you're designing an activity to address that question or that residual risk. So with the exception of things like syringes and, and needles, in most cases, you'd be looking at something at least on the level of a, you know, a user survey or something like that, some kind of proactive data collection. So and, from and that those, perspective, you'll be sorry, doing Jeff. those forever, right? <laughs> so you'd be doing something like that for the, the marketing right. lifetime of the device. Sorry, Sally, I didn't mean to cut I was just going to say, but those endpoints could change. I mean, they, they may be different depending on whether you're looking at the functional lifetime of the device or whether you're beyond that. So yeah, yes, so just true. keep reevaluating what's come in, what you've supported, what is still... I mean, think of it from supported. the perspective of patient benefit risk, like, right, yeah. Sally, that's what you're getting yeah. at, right? You exactly. know, beyond, beyond, maybe beyond the three to five year period, you're, you're less interested in actual device performance parameters and more so patient symptom relief and quality of life related outcomes. So your objectives can vary across your device life. Exactly. And then I guess you made me think of another point as well in that sometimes because the state of the art moves on, there's an expectation of additional data collection. Mm -hmm. So occasionally yeah. at yeah. the SI, the internal clinician team would say, okay, well, they've actually got reasonable clinical data, but it's old. It's like from the late 90s and the state of the art has moved on since then and actual clinical practice has moved on since then. They want to see well, what kind of outcomes are they achieving now and have, have not accepted a more passive PMS type of approach to those. They've said actually you need to have something a little bit more robust. So it, it's kind of, it's not even the amount of data. It's like when it was collected and what's been happening to the state of the art as well. That's a very good point, um, Amy, because 
I know there are some product standards, product vertical standards that have objective performance criteria that every time the standard gets updated, those OPCs or objective performance criteria get updated. And over time, they've been getting more and more stringent. It doesn't apply to every device, but there are some devices for which the standards publish OPCs. So I'd keep an eye on that as well in terms of PMCL follow-up requirements. Yeah. Okay, thanks guys, that was great. Um... We're going to do a question now that came from the audience last time that we didn't get to. Um, in the five to ten year time span, is it foreseeable that clinical data gaps will be identified through comparative analysis of SSCP quantified risk sections? And what is the growth trajectory if no standardization exists on harm coding in different manufacturer SSCPs? That's a really Amy, interesting question. It is, yeah, it is. I mean, I can take a stab at it. <laughs> and so the way I, so first of all, there's going to be expert panels for a lot of these that have the SSCPs. And so the expert panels will likely be reviewing a lot of these things. So hopefully they'll, they'll be seeing these things from different notified bodies and from different manufacturers. So hopefully the expert panels will at least have some consistency on the way they're reviewing these documents. And so you'd get some idea of consistency, but I, the, when I initially heard that question, it made me think, well, as part of your clinical evaluation process, you should be reviewing risks on other devices regardless throughout the lifetime of the device and as part of the clinical evaluation. So this is just part of the standard clinical evaluation procedure where you're evaluating risks and harms that have been reported for other devices, then you take it in consideration for your device. So I feel like it's kind of, I don't know, know if business as usual is the right term, but it's just another source of data where you can see, okay, how are my risks compared to the other devices? And then you have to make a justification that yours are acceptable in light of the state of the art. You know, John, I think you covered it really well. The only thing I'd add is, are we going to see a level of standardization? Maybe, maybe not. I personally, I feel like we're driving towards that. Like for example, if you look at uh, Annex 14, uh, 1B, I believe it is, it, it asks for a systematic literature review as part of your you know, um, CER, right? And then if you also look at some of the examples in MedDev 2.7.1, Rev 4, one of the examples cited in there is meta-analysis. I know there are some reviewers who ask for meta-analysis every single time, and that's a little infuriating because it doesn't really apply every single time, and neither does a systematic literature review, uh, you know, <laughs> mean that it is a meta-analysis. They're not one and the same thing. But I think there is, eventually, there's going to be an inexorable drive to that end, and that may even culminate in some common specifications for certain device types. I think that's where things are being driven to, and whether or not we'll have more guidance documents published once the first rounds of SSCPs are, you know, first or second rounds of SSCPs are reviewed, based on what the expert panels find, I think we'll get there. Now, I don't know, and maybe some of you have actually looked at the composition, uh, <laughs> some of the expert panels uh, that have been published. And, you know, I've looked at the circulatory devices. There are, some, there are some heavy names there. There are some names in there that are very well published or very strong when it comes to the statistical analysis of things. So we are driving uh, towards the intent of this question, really, yeah. I, I did have another thought on that because it's something I sort of speculated on at the time when we became aware 
of you know the requirement for the SSCP and how it was going to pan out and all the different requirements that came out in the guidance with, you know, with respect to SSCP, which was that there might be some self-normalization that when you know a manufacturer sees what other manufacturers have put out there, they might say, oh, wait a minute, so-and-so got away with a lot less, but we're going to scale that back. Or they might say, oh, well, they look a lot better than this because they've been much more transparent. They've got a lot more evidence. And you might see some normalization on that scale of, of right. people being aware of what other data other manufacturers have and then trying to, to address that with their own. Yeah, especially with the SSCPs being out there, almost like a competitive tool going forward. <laughs> Point. How do you translate the clinical data gaps into a PMCF or PMPF plan? And can all the gaps be mitigated by PMCF? <laughs> I can take it. <laughs> Amy, go ahead. You were starting to respond. No, no, no. You, you, you go ahead. I mean, uh, I think we, we all have very strong opinions on this, but I think it, luckily they're all kind of on the same page. So <laughs> any one of us will say the same thing. So you go ahead, Jay. <laughs> well, straight answer is no. Not all gaps can be mitigated through a PMCF. And if you think about what is the real intention of the PMCF, it is to unearth any unknown unknowns, right? Um, and it is to confirm long-term safety and performance. So if there are aspects of your clinical evaluation that you previously under the MDD maybe rationalized, right? Certain aspects of indications that didn't have data or certain aspects of your patient population that you didn't really have data, those can be tough, you know, uh, to simply rely on PMCF. If you're going in for your initial MDR, um, initial MDR application. It's not that it cannot be done, right? For example, maybe your device is indicated for uh, very rare pediatric cases as well as congenital adult cases, right? And for some reason, depending on uh, various different factors, it may be really difficult to get data on one aspect of the patient population, which you were able to successfully rationalize under the MDR, under the MDD. But the expectation under an MDR application would have been that under a PMCF route for your MDD certificate, you should have been able to gather that data or that specific aspect of the pediatric population. So if you still rely on the same rationale to say that, okay, now we're still gonna rely on PMCF under the MDR, it may not really work, right? Contrarily, maybe you did a proactive effort, you actually ran a study or a registry or whatever it may be, and it just happens that you have slightly less in terms of volume, right? Lesser volume of data for a certain aspect of the indication. And maybe that even follows the actual normal distribution for what your sales are like, right? So maybe you have a little bit of a justification to say that, look, we're going to do an additional follow-up under PMCF, right? For this particular aspect that is currently not so much lacking in both quantity and quality, but just, you know, it's although it is representative of what the actual uses, we will be gathering more data to further confirm long-term safety and performance. That may be okay. So it really depends on what your situation is. If, if you know, long story short, if the plan is to recycle the same rationales <clears throat> that were used under the MDD, you'll run into some heavy weather. All good. Okay. We have a question from the audience. Oh, go ahead, Sally. I was going to say, I think it's also, I think as Jay touched on, it's really important to look at those minor indications where you're not going to find publications on large numbers of patients. And these are often, these are often the areas where, okay, these patients are covered under your intended purpose, your indications, but there's not enough data. And that's, yeah, it can be tricky in terms of PMCF, but also you're probably not looking at quite such large studies that, as you would otherwise. So I think that that's, it's a nice way to sort of capture those 
not gaps, not allowed to call them gaps, but where, where, your, where your data is a little bit thin. We have an audience question on PMCF. Mm -hmm. uh, what about PMCF for Class 2A disposable devices? Do you need proactive PMCF collect, collection even after sales have stopped or prior to self shelf life expiration? Sales have stopped, so they still have a sales certificate? Sales have stopped. Sales have stopped, they have a certificate, but shelf life could go for five years. So this is interesting. I remember on the PSER committee, there was a lot of discussion about requirements for data collection and and essentially that interpreting that 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 guidance hasn't been published yet but it's like this is about two or three years ago these discussions were going on initially and there was a definite stare um, from the commission and competent authorities that that data collection did have to carry on through as long as the device was on the market and even if it wasn't certified anymore that data collection had to, to carry on and then there was the question of well okay but if they're not certified anymore who's going to be checking up on them to make sure they do it and the immediate response of, of the, uh, the commission panel was, well, the notified body, of course. And we're like, well, but if there's no certificate, we've got no legal, you know, we, we've got no relationship with that manufacturer anymore. We can't sort of go and say, hello, we used to be your notified body five years ago. We just want to come in and audit your deposit. And so it was- You're not getting paid. <laughs> yeah, you're not getting well, yeah, paid. And, and we don't have a right to, if it's not- yeah. yeah, there's no contract that the notified body's got no right to do that. It, you can, and then if the new notified the new notified body isn't particularly, as far as I'm aware, have a right to look at legacy things that another notified body certified. So I mean, this is part of the quality system, but it, that, that was a question that came up. Um, so theoretically, yes, but we don't know who will be monitoring. It might be the, the member states or the competent authorities that monitor it. Okay, can you build some rationale around risk and say for class 2A, the risk is relatively low and we'll do some very light data collection? I mean, I think it's just a matter well, of how, what's the easiest way we can just meet the requirements in that interim period? You know, really that not all 2A devices are low risk, but go on, Jay. No, I know, I know. <laughs> well, that's very Pleasure. true. I think it really depends on what the device is. You know, you may you may have a syringe, uh, you know, a syringe connected to a needle with, uh, with with something in the syringe and packaged that way. And that you know that could be uh, your two A example. It could be dental implants, but again, I think dental implants are not two A anymore under the MDR. Or it could be a guide wire that goes into your peripheral vasculature, but there are some guide wires that go in through your um, you know vena cava down into your peripheral vasculature so to sally's point it really depends on what are the risks afforded to the patient and what is the current clinical data set that you have as part of your clinical evaluation now as part of that if you've been able to clearly demonstrate safety and performance and over time if you've been able to demonstrate that look the there is no real no significant rate of change when it comes to the state of the art the standard of care hasn't really changed right uh, there have been no real safety alarms with this kind of a device. The publications haven't unearthed anything new. Then you can possibly get away with, you know, the lowest level of uh, data gathering when it comes to PMS, that being more the reactive. But it has to be based on the strength of your existing clinical data set and what has been happening out there as far as the state of the art and standard of care is concerned, to be able to justify not doing anything additionally proactively. So it really depends, sure. it starts with what is your device intended to use and then from there on. Sorry, go on. 
Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it, it depends, of course. I'm just trying to say there must be cases here. Do your risk management, tell the story, build a common sense rationale, see what you've already got. And that will come out differently for every device. Audience question, who determines what the state of the art is? <laughs> the, <laughs> well, here's the thing. Who determines what the state of the art is? Think about who is responsible for CE marking? It's not your notified body. As a manufacturer, you yourself, because you're the ones who sign the declaration of conformity. So back up from there on, right? Who writes your CER? Who conducts your risk management? It's you under the ages of your quality management system, right? And under those requirements is when you go and do a lit search to try and you know you know get all of the data that helps helps establish the state of the art. So the answer to your question is you yourself helps determine the state of the art based on the understanding of what your technology is, what the alternate treatment methodologies or therapeutic methodologies for that target patient population may be, what is the standard of care? When I say standard of care, it's primarily physician guidelines in that area. What are some of the standards involved? What are some of the guidance documents, uh, uh, guidance, um, you know, from the EU perspective, what are some of the guidance documents out there? All of these together in, you know, in also uh, along with the published literature helps the manufacturer establish what the state of the art is. So yes, it is you as a manufacturer who helps establish what the state of the art is. I would say, yes, that's true. But practically speaking, you have to make sure that what the manufacturer or you as the manufacturer are saying is state of the art is actually aligns with common knowledge for state of the art because what the notified body will review it and you will have a very usually pretty smart technical reviewer who knows has seen a lot of devices and really knows what the state of the art and you also have a clinician reviewing that file who will know intuitively what the state of the art so what you're saying in your CER for your state of the art doesn't align with what they expect to see, you're going to get a lot of questions. And so it really should be scientifically justified and it has to, you know, be in line with what truly is the state of the art. And obviously there's yeah. wiggle room between That's an that excellent practice. point, John. You know, yeah. let me let me expand on on that item from from John. Um, Sally, I don't mean to interrupt, but I think this is something that would help for people to appreciate. Right. To John's point, you know, when you send in your review to a notified body, not any reviewer can pick up your file, right? Reviewers, especially in the top notified bodies, are hired primarily because of their experience, both from academia and in industry in a particular area. So if somebody has experience in orthopedics, there is no way they can look at a cardiovascular device. And even within orthopedics, there are very specific codes. So depending on their prior industry and or academic experience, are they allowed to you know, review certain types of devices? So on, on the cardiovascular field, if somebody has experience only with heart valves and not stents, they'll be able to, or allowed to look at only valves and never a stent, right? So to John's point, the reviewers have a very good idea of what the state of the art is. They have a good calibration before they get into your review. So don't think that when it goes to the notified body, anybody is allowed to pick up your review. It's a, it's a highly codified process. There are many levels when it comes to competency review and the codes that are allocated to these reviewers, and they're only allowed to pick up reviews based on the codes that are allocated to them. Thanks, John, for bringing that up. No okay, next question. I'm gonna start with Sally. 
So we talked about PMCF. What are other cost-effective and timely solutions to enabling keeping your devices on the market if you have gaps? Mm, if you've got true gaps at this stage of the game, our transitioning to MDR, this is a pretty high-risk scenario we're talking about. So I guess the most obvious, the most radical, if you like, way to do this would be to actually limit your indications. Um, maybe your data set can support, I don't know, one or two indications. Maybe others just simply aren't strong enough. So, yeah, you don't want some smaller indicator, one indication to jeopardize the future of that device on the market in total. So maybe you would do that strategically, hopefully as a temporary step, while you developed effectively pre-market studies or whatever you would need in order to support these, these additional indications for a device. So that's, that's one way forward. I'm sure Amy and Jay have had a lot more experience of other ways, or maybe John too. That would be my first thought. I would just say that you can't keep the, you have to have demonstrate conformity to the essential requirements of the GSPRs to keep your device in the market. And so therefore you can't have gaps, right? Kind of how we discussed. And so the PMCF is not intended to fix gaps. Um, so really cost effective solutions other than to go and collect that data is you can go with equivalence if that's even a possibility for you. You can, as Sally said, change the indications. Um, and that's really your only options. <laughs> um, so I don't know, Amy, what are, what are your thoughts? No, no, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, the only other thing I could think of that this presumably this is something that the manufacturer would have tried anyway is to make a more sort of nuanced benefit risk, i.e. provide a better justification for why this rather thin uh, data set is acceptable in this in this sense. And it does, and it is, it is acceptable sometimes. And it can sometimes be acceptable to say, okay, hands up, we know we don't really have a good level of clinical evidence here. But when you look at the strength of this evidence against what we have for the state of the art and the benefits and risks associated with alternative therapies, it would actually be a greater risk to the, pa the patient to remove this indication. And then, you know, so we've provided justification that shows conformity to the GSPRs, and we're going to confirm that with our PMCF studies. But presumably, I think they probably would have already gone down that avenue before they got forced into the corner of saying, actually, no, we don't have quite enough evidence. Okay, thanks, guys. See, next one. What's the best approach to documenting cl clinical evidence weaknesses in your technical documentation to improve your odds of notify body acceptance? So, who, who wants to go? Go on, go Amy. Ahead. Go ahead, Amy. <laughs> I think this is what we, we've, we've all been saying the whole time is really be very transparent because if you try and kind of disguise it, you don't stratify the data, you think, oh, I'll get this great big lump of data and they won't notice that I don't have data for more of the of the eight variants in there because I've just provided it as an aggregate. It is just going to raise the notified body reviewer suspicion. Whereas if you lay it all out and you provide your justifications, you you know, explain, okay, there's not direct clinical evidence on variant X, but actually we're making an equivalence justification between variant X and variants Y, or we think that there's um, a, a rationale that can be provided for why data on indication A is applicable to indication B. You just lay it out, the evidence you have, why you think it supports a positive benefit-risk conclusion, and you know, and then ally that to your post-market surveillance, post-market clinical follow-up plan. I think that's that's the best strategy. And really consider 
do you need to, to narrow those indications? If you can't make that justification for overall benefit risk, maybe the easiest course of action is to say, okay, we're going to have to make these indications much more specific so that it's allied to the data, the, the evidence that we actually do have for these devices. Anyone else? Okay. That really is it. Actually, you know what? Sorry, just a quick point. <laughs> we can't resist. We can't resist. I know, I know. No, 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 I'm just the same. Go on. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the thing, right, Amy, to your point, be very explicit because, you know, if you if you just present a lump of data that is not stratified um, to what Amy was saying, you know, that's the first thing the reviewer is going to try to do. They're going to take a look at all of your models and all of your variants, create a table and try and, you know, create that clinical evidence matrix themselves. I know it because I've done it and I know that there are plenty of others who would do this as, you know, step one after having gone through the CER because they need to make a recommendation on your behalf. You know, now in this case, you didn't enable them. So they're going to spend maybe eight hours. If you, you know, if you've opted for a dedicated review, you're paying them $10,000 to create this table that you really could have created yourself um, anyway. And then on the basis of the gaps in that table that they create for themselves, you're going to get 15 questions. So, you know, if you can be just very clear up front, maybe, uh, you know, where you don't have direct data to Amy's point, think about where surrogate endpoints could be very useful, right? Think about cases where patient reported outcomes could help tide you over in case of certain perceived gaps. So that's that's all I wanted to add. I would actually, sort of following on from what you said, don't also don't don't be um, perceived that because the reviewer spent eight hours stratifying the data for you, they're not necessarily going to share their work with you. So it's not a way of, kind of getting free consultancy because they, they may do, do that. that. Yeah. yeah. And and they might just say, well, why haven't you got evidence for this? Give me your evidence for this specific variant or this specific indication. And the other thing is there's an element of psychology that comes into play as well, that after you spent eight hours trolling through the data, trying to make sense of it, I think some reviewers are kind of a little bit more reluctant to back down. So you've got to fight that much harder. That is so true. So true. The rationale in the first place. Right. Yeah, I think like the most one of the most common first round questions I see from the notified bodies is, please explain what data directly applies to this variant or what data directly applies to this indication. And it's based on what I think Jay is describing. They go through, they look at your CER and they say, there's these two indications, but it's all lumped together. You're using equivalents. I can't tell which device it applies to. And they just ask the question. And then, so you're kind of wasting a round of questions and there's really only three that you have. So you really get yourself ahead of the game. It might not get you to a positive place because if you have no data, you still have to justify it and they still might not find it acceptable, but at least mm -hmm. you save on rounds. And it's a little bit, I think, builds good faith with the reviewer knowing that, okay, they are you know, looking in it, but they always ask. So I think the time of thinking like you don't really have to do it in my mind is over. <laughs> you know, that old philosophy where give them as little as possible and then make them ask you the question, really the time for that is gone. I mean, that that philosophy needs to be shelled. Yes. Yeah. It's hard to give up though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a couple... A couple audience questions combined from last time on how much is enough. So can mm -hmm. I get away with less clinical data for class 2A devices? Mm -hmm. And how much is enough? Like, for example, class 3 implants, if you have data for, say, 70 patients, might that be enough? 
You know, the straight answer for the class 2A question is most likely no. And sometimes class 2As tend to be a lot more complicated than class 3s because they may have very many indications associated, right, with, with that one device. And the other thing is the MDR doesn't make any difference in terms of clinical data requirements across device classifications. So that's, that's a very simple, straightforward answer to that question. Uh, what was the second question, Lisa? Sorry. How much data How is, much enough? is enough? So, for example, class three implants, if you have data for, say, 70 patients, might that mm. be enough? You know, it's tough to answer that question because there are many considerations around it. Is this a 70 patient data set for a patient population that is considered otherwise inoperable and only managed through optimal medical therapy that is showing maybe a 50% mortality rate? In that case, you have a good argument depending on what your data set is looking like. Other than that, what I would say is take a look at MDCG 2020-1. It's a software-related guidance document, but they have some, uh, you know, four bullet points each for sufficient quantity and quality. So that'll help you. Secondly, the most important item to bear in mind is to be able to show statistical significance and clinical relevance for the endpoints and the objectives that you're after, mm -hmm. right? So 70 may or may not be enough, but it really depends on all of the items that lend perspective to that 70. Yeah, and like, are, is there a lot of different patient populations you're trying to show it for? Are there a lot of different indications? The more you have to divide up that 70 patients, the less, I mean, the less likely you are to be able to use that. And do you have equivalence data? Do you have other forms of data and so on? So in general, yeah, it's, it's one of these things where we have to hold up our it depends sign. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't support your argument for uh, stratifying the data. It doesn't matter whether you, you you can't put it together in aggregate and then expect the notified body is going to say, oh, okay, that's fine. I don't need to have it stratified because I know you won't have enough evidence. If you do stratify it, they're just going to say you don't have enough evidence. It actually, what you could do is present it both ways. Now say, actually, we've got this data. If we stratify it down, we can't make a statistical justification, but here's a good rationale for why we can lump it together. But if you don't provide that justification, Absolutely. then you kind of yeah. lost. But if you yeah. can provide the justification, they're just going to say, go and get more data. So, Yeah, I mean, this question has been around since the MDR was published, isn't it? How much data is enough? It comes you know, up let me give every you single conference, everything. That's very true, Sally. And the let answer me... is always, it depends. <laughs> so I like Jay's point. No, I think Jay, you made a very good point about you know if there is no alternative and the mortality rate is extremely high and there is a huge clinical benefit, that changes things. So again, you've got to look at your clinical background. What is your state of the art? Right. What are your clinicians using? What are the risks? And what what is on offer for these patients? You know, ultimately that's what's important. And I've seen very high risk novel devices get through on on quite small data set for precisely that reason that they're saying mm -hmm. actually. There are no suitable treatment options for this patient. They're going to be in chronic intractable pain, or they're going to die in six months, or you know, like pancreatic cancer, for example. Well, they're going to die and be in excruciating agony for the next six months. So, can we consider what does this evidence look like when you weigh it against these risks? And you can you could consider that maybe the data set in that case could be less robust than you might need for a novel hip replacement when there are already really good options out there for hip replacement. Yeah, and I think this is a really good uh, example of when to bring your clinicians in so they can help you build those arguments. Mm -hmm. Very true. Okay, one more question for the day, last one. This is John's favorite topic, so we can't miss this one. Um, 
how do you make all of the documentation sing together? CER, PMCF plan, SSCP, risk file, labeling, providing a cohesive clinical evidence story to the notified body that they can feel good about approving. Coir practice. <laughs> I, this is a hard answer because, you know, to be honest, I don't see, practically speaking, people do a great job of it. I think everybody's still struggling a little bit with this and how to really do it. I think the first thing is that you have to just make sure all of these things are considered. Right, you can't just work in silos and ignore the risk management, can't ignore the clinical evaluation, which ignores the PMS data. So in their conclusions. So I think the first thing is they're all need to be at least considered together, right? And so in order to have that, at least the teams need to be aware of what the other work people are doing and then what the outputs of those work. So building a process that at least has people speaking to each other is like the first I think thing you have to do. And then everything else is really defining the specifics of it, which is very difficult. And you know, I, I think there isn't any one solution. I think you just have to try to create a system that makes sense to you and that these documents are feeding into each other and speaking to each other. Mm -hmm. And we're not done. We have one more question. Sorry, I missed yep. an audience question. <laughs> I don't wanna pass it up. Um, she asked, for a point-of-care ultrasound device PMCF study, would we be required to cover the lifetime of the device by capturing the scan sessions of the devices used to ensure that the data includes devices at different ages by usage as opposed to years? I'm gonna ask that again. I, yes, please. Well, I think it's, uh, okay, yeah, ask again. I'll say it again. I think they're asking like, it, do okay. you have to prove that it works multiple times? Like, so you have like, this thing can be used for 500 uses. Do you need to like find data where one device was used for 300, one device was used for 400, one was for 500? I would say my, I have not seen people going to that level. So I think you validate your lifetime with the preclinical testing, that type of lifetime, like number of uses and things like that with your preclinical testing. And then you monitor things, but I've not seen people like going to the level of detail like that. I don't know, Jay, is there, or Amy or Sally, have you seen people go into that level of detail? I have not for this kind of a device, but you know, it, in, in my opinion, it comes back to how the manufacturer wants to define it. Say for example, if it's, 500 uses over the period of five years, right? Um, and the notified body will look at whatever you submit, right? Your uh, documentation. Now, if for example, <clears throat> your lifetime claim appears on certain promotional materials or something like that, in this case, the SSCP doesn't apply for this particular device, but in, in cases where it does, the point that I made earlier today about competitive advantage slash disadvantage becomes real. You may have your competitor who may say 1,000 users over 10 years and you may be 500 users over five years. So it really depends on what your testing can support and um, you know whatever justification you have for that when it comes to the lifetime for this kind of a device, yeah. Okay, thanks everyone, that's it for today.